Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel. I won't be saying that too many more times, but uh, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much as we come this morning. Uh, that you are here present with us uh, today. Uh, God, you know uh, each and every person that is here today. Lord, you know what we need to hear. And so I pray that you would minister to our souls to uh, encourage us, Lord, in our faith of you. Lord, that uh, where we might be struggling, where we are wrestling, Lord, that you would lay out your word to us and the hope that we have. Oh, Lord Jesus, um, we just thank you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, how appropriate it is that we are celebrating Easter during Thanksgiving. I mean, because what more should we as Christians be thankful for than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Amen. This week I've been uh, reading about meditation and not only, you know, how Christians are to meditate, but even the things that they are to meditate on. And uh, as I was reading, I was uh, studying about what the Puritans had, had, what they meditated upon. For those of you that may not know, the Puritans were uh, a movement of Christians during the 16th, 1600s where they were very serious about what God's Word says and they would meditate upon God's Word. And I was sort of surprised by sort of the, the main topic that they meditated upon. I thought it would have been the person of the person of work of Christ or maybe our struggle with sin or, or something like that. But uh, from the reading I have done, it looks like the thing that they meditated the most on was heaven. Heaven. And that makes sense in, in one sense because that's our end game, right? That's where we're heading. That's what we're looking forward to is, is heaven. And as, as we have a, a heavenly perspective, you know, it, it allows us to live faithfully here upon this earth in which we live. And so as we think about heaven, you know, how more can we get there but 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As, as He was resurrected, so one day we will be resurrected, right? And we will be with Him face to face. And so it's only appropriate that we look at the resurrection this morning. Now, all of the gospel writers talk about the resurrection. And they give details that overlap with one another, but then some gospels say things that other gospels don't say. Mark's account actually is the shortest. It gives us the least amount of details. But what it does do is, is it talks to us or shows us the eyewitness accounts of those who saw the tomb empty first. And, and interestingly enough and notably, the witnesses were women. Now, in our day and time, that's not necessarily so much an issue. But uh, in Jewish circles, at the time that Mark wrote this, the testimony of women was pretty worthless. Uh, a woman's testimony was worthless to establish a fact, so they couldn't, their word couldn't be legally received. Uh, so why would Mark include them as witnesses uh, as he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why, why would he include women? Well, I would suggest to you there's only one reason, because it's true. It wouldn't have added anything to his testimony in one sense for his day and the time in which he lived, but it was true. And there's no other compelling reason. And so Mark tells us the story of that first eyewitness account to the empty tomb. And he sort of draws us into the story of these women. And, and I think that as we go through this, that you and I will be able to relate to this and to their experience. The first thing I want you to see, this, this isn't my first point, we're still sort of in the introduction, but I want us, you to see, first of all, that these women were very devoted to Jesus. If we sort of step back from Mark's gospel and we look at all the other gospel accounts, we see that these women were women who supported his ministry. Uh, they were there not only to hear Jesus' teaching, but they helped uh, financially support it and in other ways. I think about us as a missions church, as Kirk of the Plains. We have we have people outside of our church who come alongside us and they support us through, you know, assisting us in worship with music or financial giving or prayers or anything like that. And it was that kind of thing that these women did for Jesus's ministry. But but even if you zoom back in to just Mark's gospel and you look at chapter 15, you see that, that these women were there with Jesus even when his disciples deserted him. You know, they had left in, in the Garden of Gethsemane or, or there shortly after. And, but these women sort of stuck around. Look at, back at chapter 15, verse 40. You see that these women were with Jesus when he died on the cross. Now, they were sort of far off. They were distanced. But they were still there nonetheless. And then look at verse 47. You see that these women were, were there when Joseph buried Jesus, observing where he was laid so that they could come back later with spices and, and anoint his body. Now, after Jesus was buried, it was the Sabbath. So, of course, the women couldn't do anything with the body until after the Sabbath. But if you look at chapter 16 and verse 1, we see their steadfast, loving devotion to Jesus. Saturday, you know, as soon as the Sabbath was over, you know, sundown, they went out into the markets and, and they got the spices that they would need 
so that they could go and they could anoint Jesus' body. And then it says on Sunday, it actually says the first day of the week, but that would have been Sunday. It says that they got up early, right? No, actually it says in verse 2, they got up very early. And so most likely they got up when it was still dark out and they started making the trek to the tomb to get there only at, at, at sunrise, right? Where they could anoint Jesus' body. And you sort of get the sense from these opening verses of chapter 16 that these women were just waiting for the Sabbath to end so that they could continue to show their devotion to Jesus. And, and yet, as much as we see their loving and loyal devotion here, it certainly seems more of an act of devotion than an act of faith. Now let me try to explain what I mean by that. Uh, remember, they were coming in the morning. Why were they coming? To anoint Jesus' dead body with the spices, right? And that was very common in that day and time to help with the odors of this body that was rotting. Um, so their actions were certainly loving, but they don't seem to be the actions of people expecting Jesus' imminent resurrection. And that's what I mean by the fact that it was an act of devotion and love, but maybe not as much an action of faith in, in believing the words that Jesus spoke. If you remember back earlier on in Mark, Jesus told his followers that he would be arrested, he would be killed, and he would be resurrected. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it in chapter 8. He said it in chapter 9. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't get it, he also repeated it in chapter 10 because he wanted them to know exactly what was going to happen. And let me read uh, Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 34. Jesus is telling him what's going to happen to him. And he says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And like I said, they, Jesus also said similar words in chapter 8, verse 31. And chapter 9, verse 31. And that's where I think that uh, we might relate to these women. It's so easy to be devoted to Christ, to Jesus, and yet sometimes not walk by faith, is it not? Well, maybe that's not true for you, but it's true for the guy standing behind the pulpit, okay? We can struggle with that. We can wrestle with that. And, and as much as we want to be followers of Christ, we, we seek and, and, and we seek to get our theology right in our heads, and we as Presbyterians do that uh, quite well, right? We, we as Reformed folks, we, we want to, to know what we believe and have our theology just straight. Um, but you don't know what you truly believe until your theology collides with life and the things you experience. It, it is when you take the theology in your head... And, and, and you sort of put that together with how you live your life in the midst of circumstances that you see what you truly believe. You can say what you believe in your head, but as you have to live that theology out in your life, it really sort of shows you where your heart truly is with God. And, and that, that may at first glance be disheartening for some of us here today. You may think, oh, Pastor Rick, I just don't want to tell you the things I've been struggling with. Because oftentimes we can feel that weight, we can feel that guilt of our, our doubts of, of God or, or the way that He's doing things in our lives. 
But I think we need to understand that these women were experiencing the same kinds of things. Uh, Jesus never looked less like the Son of God in their minds than he did on that morning. Because in their minds, Jesus was dead. Yes, I know what he said, what he taught, but the reality is he's dead. And they were sure that he was dead. They were so sure that he was dead that they went out, they bought these spices so they could anoint his body. The one thing that these women did not expect that morning was Easter. They did not expect the resurrection. You see, oftentimes Christ will not live up to our expectations. He will often do what we least expect. And so, as, as you come this morning, I, I want us to ask the question is, what can you expect from Jesus this morning? What is it about Jesus that is true that, that no matter what happens, you can take this to the bank? It's something that where Christ will never let you down. And let me show you three things with you that you can always expect from Jesus. First of all, Jesus will be faithful when you least expect it. He'll be faithful when you least expect it. You can trust Jesus Christ to keep his word. Always he will keep his word. People will fail you. They'll break their promises. They will lie to you. But Jesus will keep all of his promises. Heaven and earth will pass away, we're told. And yet not one jot or tittle of his word will fail. We see this. Um, as we see the reality of the resurrection. As I said earlier, Jesus had promised this, and it actually came about. But we also see this in the woman's encounter with the angel. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. What does it say? Just as he told you. See, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 14, 28. Mark 14, 28 says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Jesus said this to his disciples, to his, his, his inner circle of disciples. So I don't know when these women heard this, whether the disciples told them, but the way the angel talks, that they, they knew that, that this is something that they said. You see, the women, they loved Jesus and they were devoted to him, and yet... They did not live by faith and, and trust God's word that was given to them. And despite the fact, the fact of these women not believing what Christ had said, um, we need to remember that he will be faithful when you least expect it. You see, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. When, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And we must never forget that no matter what the circumstances that, that we are going through. And I know that as a congregation, there are many very difficult and trying circumstances that, that you are walking through, that we are going through. I say you, but it also includes my family as well and the challenges that we're going through. But we must never forget that regardless of the way that we act and the way that we might struggle in our faith, Christ continues to be faithful even when we least expect it. When you don't expect God to be there with you in your life, He will demonstrate His faithfulness in ways that you don't expect. Now, think about these women who were going to the tomb and look at their conversation in verse 3. 
And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then in verse 4, it says at the very end of that verse, I think it's really neat how Mark just sort of tacks this on to the end. It was very large. You know, I mean, it wasn't just a stone. It was like a huge stone. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago when we talked about the burial of Christ, how oftentimes they would not only roll a stone in front of the tomb, but they would dig sort of a trench. And that stone would fit down in that trench. So you sort of had gravity on your side to get that stone down and it would just sort of seat itself in there. So it's one thing to get the stone in front of the, the tomb, but to then move it away is very difficult, if not almost impossible. And so for these women, that's a very valid point. You know, there's this huge stone been put in place. So by the way, how are we gonna get in? Uh, we, we have these spices, but how are we gonna be able to anoint the body? And the text doesn't specifically state it, but surely these women were surprised when they saw the tomb open because they weren't expecting that. I mean, as you can see by their conversation, they thought that this would be an issue. So when they, they came up and they see in verse 4, oh, the stone is, is rolled away, they, they were surprised by that. You see, God gives us his word and he tells us what he is going to do, but he rarely tells us how he's going to do that in our lives. So what do we do? What is our temptation with that oftentimes? As we have God's promises like the resurrection that's staring us in the faith, face and, and God hasn't told us exactly how we're going to do it, what do we typically do? Even as Christians, <coughs> do we not oftentimes fixate on the how? Isn't that where we oftentimes put our energy? We're sort of thinking about the problem that is before us or, or the difficulty and we're trying to figure out what God's going to do and we're trying to analyze that and, 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 and we sort of get all tied up in the weeds. And, we, and then we begin to, as we sort of mull it over in our heads and we see the impossibility of the circumstances that we begin to, to think, can God really do this? I mean, you think about Abraham and Sarah. They said, you know, you're 100 years old and you're going to have a baby. Now, if I could use Lillian as an illustration, what if I told you that she just found out from the doctors this week she's pregnant, she's going to have a kid? <laughs> I know, everybody, you know, you're like, what? You know, but that's what we're talking about. And then we want to look at that and say, but Lord, how does that happen? Now think about the things that you're going through in your life, the struggles that you have, or, or maybe if it's not you, maybe it's somebody else in the congregation, and you've been praying for them, and, and you're just like, you're really wrestling maybe with the circumstances they find themselves in. And it may be that our struggle is, is that what we do is, is that we focus so much on the how that we take our eyes off of the reality of what God has promised. You see, rather than keeping our eyes on what God promised and leaving the details to God, we want, and maybe even sometimes we demand, that God tell us how. And we get all wrapped up in what we want to know uh, rather than resting in what He's told us. And, you know, there are many saints that wrestle with this, right? You know, you think about David when, when he got caught in the sin with Bathsheba. You know, 
And he's trying to figure all this out, and he's trying to manipulate these circumstances. So there's plenty of examples of those in the Bible who did not have faith in God when, when the Lord said something. But then there were others who exhibited tremendous faith, like, for example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. When the angel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, you know, she did ask an honest question. Really, how can this be? I've never been with a man. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a question of doubt. It wasn't accusing God. It was just an honest question. And God said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And Mary accepted that. She, she rested in that. She didn't try to figure out how it was all going to come about. She just rested in that. Another figure that sort of is uh, portrayed in that light is Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua was a man of, of, of great faith. If the Lord said it, he trusted the Lord. Now, there were plenty of Israelites that Joshua was to care for that doubted and sinned and did things against the Lord. But Joshua himself seemed to be a man of great faith and, and to take the Lord at his word. You see, we'll get into trouble if we let our expectations of Jesus sort of outrun his word. If you expect him to do things that he's never promised, then your life will be full of worry and anxiety and frustration and even anger. And sometimes that's where we can find ourselves, where, where we want certain things in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And rather than resting in God's word, we're sort of looking at how God is going to carry out that word and, and also sort of getting tangled and twisted up in all of this is our own personal desires. And there's nothing wrong with having desires. God has made us that way. But, but the, the struggle can come in when our desires want to trump God's will. But we need to be reminded of what Christ said when he prayed in Mark 14, 36 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all these things are very possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but you, what you will. Jesus would ask what he desired, but he really wanted what the Father wanted. But sometimes we can, we can really wrestle with God because really what we want is for God to, to give us our will rather than submitting to Him. But you see, brothers and sisters, God wants us to rest in Him. He wants us to know that, that He will be faithful and answer even in ways that we don't expect. He wants us to trust that He will do that. You see, God loves us, and He wants to take the burden off of us. Does anybody here have a kid that whenever there's some issue that comes up in your family, they want to take the responsibility for that decision upon themselves, right? You know, you're saying, oh my goodness, we, got, we have to uh, go to my parents' house, and then we have to go do this, we have to go do that. And you're trying to figure out the schedule, right, as adults. And this child is like, worrying about all of this stuff and they're getting very anxious about it and what do you say to them stop i'm the adult i will take this weight you don't need to carry this burden just rest that mom and dad knows what's best and just trust them and in many ways god does the same with us we read in first peter chapter 5 verse 6 humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And that's what the Lord wants with us. We, we must not let our desires and our expectations of God outrun His Word. We must let go of our expectations and trust that God will do what He promises. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That's what Paul's focus was. That God would be glorified and that He would keep all of those promises. And so even when your world falls apart and everything is a mess, it doesn't matter how lonely you feel or how discouraged you are, you can lean on the everlasting arms of Jesus and trust His Word. Trust His promises. I think it's uh, a great example of this is the Apostle Paul. If you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is what he says. Uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. As I said, people are going to let you down. And they let the Apostle Paul down. But then he goes on and he said, But the Lord has stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You see, he said, God was there. God was walking with me through this. I just had to trust him. He said, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, what Paul is not saying there is, I will never have any troubles in my life. I will never have any danger of death or anything like that. We know that the Apostle Paul faced these things daily, you know, or at least consistently through his life. But what it does mean is that God will keep him safe so that even if he faces death, that he will come to God's heavenly kingdom. And he says here in 2 Timothy 4, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the attitude, brothers and sisters, that we can have in Christ because he is a God who is faithful even when we least expect it. But then we also see that the other thing that we can expect from Jesus is that Jesus will be merciful when you don't deserve it. He'll be merciful when you don't deserve it. Look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Other Gospels uh, explain further that this was an angel. Okay, And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, you can expect Jesus to be merciful when you don't deserve it. And we see that in a number of ways. You see, the discovery of an empty tomb and a rolled away stone wasn't enough for these women. Because uh, evidence has to be interpreted. Even if they had seen the empty tomb, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was risen. It could have meant that somebody had moved the body. It could have meant that somebody had stolen the body. 
Imagine if you would, that you come home from a vacation and your front door is ajar just a little bit and you walk in and your brand new big TV is missing. What would you assume? I've been robbed, right? You would just assume that. That is until you looked where the TV was sitting and you saw the note from your adult children that said, hey dad, um, our TV broke down and we wanted to watch the Olympics so we borrowed your TV. And you're like, oh, that makes sense now. Doesn't mean you're any happier than if somebody <laughs> sold it, but you know, it's okay. You know, at least you know what's going on. And so evidence has to be explained. And so the empty tomb wasn't enough. So God sends an angel, a messenger, to speak to these women. And he says in verse 6, do not be alarmed. Now that makes sense if you think about it. Here are women who are uh, going into a tomb and what are they expecting to encounter? A dead body. And instead, in place of a dead body, what do they see? Somebody who is very much alive. Matter of fact, somebody who is angelic, an, an angel. So you can imagine how they would be very alarmed. But the angel goes on and he says, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And so God sends his messenger to explain to these women of what has happened so that they will know for sure. He shows his mercy to these women. Even though they, they did not believe and they did not walk in faith, God was gracious not to treat them as they deserve, but instead to show them his grace and his mercy and explain that Christ has risen from the dead. But the angel even goes on further and he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, why did he say Peter? Why not just say his disciples? I mean, Peter was a disciple, right? Well, maybe because at this point, Peter may not have been so sure that he was one of Jesus' disciples. The last time that Peter spoke about Jesus was back in chapter 14, and specifically in verse 71, we read that, Peter had invoked a curse upon himself, and he swore, I don't know this man of whom you speak. That's what he said about Jesus the last time we see his recorded words. And now, for three days, Peter had been living with his failure and his betrayal of Jesus. And so, if the angel had said, go tell the disciples, it is likely that Peter may have excluded himself from the disciples, thinking... Who am I? I have denied my Lord. And so the angel specifically says, and this is the word of God. The angel doesn't say what the angel wants to say. The angel declares what God has declared. And, and, and God is declaring his mercy upon Peter to say that I have. you may have denied me, but I have not denied you. I have not abandoned you. You are still my disciple, and you are my brother. Now, this is how Jesus is. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And, and what Jesus was for Peter, he is for us this morning. And I don't know where you're at this morning or what you're going through. You may be struggling with that sense of performance mentality that you think, oh, I've been living this way or that way how could God still love me and you're wrestling you need to understand God is not like us 
His love is not as fickle as our love is. His mercy is greater than our mercy. And oh, how we need Jesus' mercy. How we need Jesus not to treat us as we deserve. And Jesus is merciful when we don't deserve it. The third thing I want us to see is, is that Jesus is fearful when you finally grasp it. Jesus is fearful when you finally grasp it or you finally get it. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You and I have a terrible capacity for underestimating the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. You and I have a terrible capacity for underestimating the glory of Jesus Christ. Do we not? We oftentimes ignore his warnings in Scripture and we give in to, to sin. We, we trivialize God's judgment. We, we neglect his word. We find it very easy to profane his name. Now, kids, I'm not talking about uh, using cuss words. That's not what I mean by profaning his name. It can be something as simple as saying, I am a Christian and identifying with Christ and yet living very different than is than what who Christ is. And we often think of God sometimes almost in human terms. And, and understandably so. I mean, he has a human body. He has a human nature. He understands us and our weaknesses. And so sometimes we can treat God almost like a regular Joe. I remember when I was younger, I came across this group that just sort of talked about God as their big buddy upstairs in the sky. You know, was sort of the way they described it. And it sort of encapsulates that kind of thinking that it's just me and Jesus and we're just sort of hanging out. And, and we can see that sometimes in prayer, the way Christians pray. We, we might even think that if we encountered Jesus, that it would be very comfortable. You know, it'd almost like be meeting an old friend, you know, to, to meet Jesus. But one of the common themes that we see in Mark's gospel is that when people finally understand who Jesus is, they find him to be a little bit uncanny. In other words, they find him to be mysterious. Uh, impossible to explain, even unsettling. The last thing they feel in Christ's presence is being uh, is being comfortable, and oftentimes they come away feeling a little bit of afraid. Uh, look, if you would, back with me to some verses, or yeah, some verses in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter four, when Jesus rebukes the storm and the sea. And immediately everything gets quiet. And then look at verse 41. How, how did the disciples react to that? It says, and they were filled, filled, filled excuse me, with great fear. They had more fear of Jesus than they had of that storm. And then chapter 5, you have the demoniac. Um, and Jesus comes and he casts the demons out. And he casts them into a herd of pigs. And the man was in his right mind. And when the villagers came out to see this man, it describes him in verse 15. They saw him and they were afraid. And then chapter 6. Look at verse 50. Here's Jesus. He's walking on the water. And when the disciples 
see him walking on the water, it describes them as being terrified. Not just sort of afraid, but terrified when they saw him. And then chapter 9, in the transfiguration. In the transfiguration where God pulls back the heavenly curtains and reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and there is Peter, James, and John there to witness this. And uh, when this happened, we see in verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, you know, Peter's always the one that when there's nothing else to be said, Peter's going to say it. Whatever he says is going to be wrong. You know, I can sort of relate to that, unfortunately. But anyway, it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You see, this is the constant theme of Mark's gospel. That we see this sense of, of people, when they see Christ for who he really is, they are terrified. They are afraid. It's not like this warm, cuddly Jesus. Turn, if you would, with me to one other passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roaring of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is a picture of the risen Christ. That is the picture of the Lord that we serve today. And that's the constant theme in Mark's gospel that we see here in chapter 16. That these women had encountered the fullness of the word of God in a way that blew their socks off. And they were astonished and they were terrified and they were afraid. And this is what happens to any who encounter the true and the risen Christ, is it not? How, though, do you feel about Jesus this morning? How do you view him? How do you see him? Here they are about to meet the resurrected Christ. That's what the angel had told them. Go, tell the disciples, and Jesus will meet you in Galilee. They're going to go meet him. And there was a sense of awe and fear and trembling. And I wonder if that's where we are this morning as his children is there that 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 sense of fear that sense of of love as we think about 
maybe one day we will close our eyes in death and we will open them and we will see Christ for who he is. Or, or if Christ chooses to come back before we die, as we think about meeting him in the clouds, is there that sense of uh, feeling that these women had in knowing Christ as the risen Christ? You see, the fear of God should restrain us more than it does. You see, we can't, we can't live a life of lukewarmness and expect to see Jesus for whom he really is. You see, Jesus is, is fearful for at least two reasons. Let me just share a couple. One, because he's holy. He is, he is perfect and just. And so we fear his judgment. We all know we'll die one day, and when we do, we'll meet with God. And if people really stop and they think about that, that this is a meeting we feel distinctively unworthy and fearful of when we meet God. We know that we will be given account for everything that we have ever said, anything we've ever done, everything that we've ever thought. And outside of Christ, there is no hope for us on that day. That is, unless we have a savior to rescue us from the judgment of this holy God, a savior who would take our place of judgment. But not only is God a holy God, but he is a God of light, whereas we are darkness, right? We, we like to appear like decent, respectable people, right? Middle class people. And, and we like for our sins to look clean, right? As middle class people. You know, we don't, we don't look at the lower class and think, oh, there's, there's threat, theft, there's robbery, there's, there's murder, there's abuse, all that kind of stuff. You know, and, and we're also not like, you know, the rich and the powerful where there's corruption, extortion, um, you know, embezzlement, you know, all that kind of stuff. Our sin's more clean, or, or so we think. We want to appear that way, but our family knows us. Those that are close to us know us, and they know that we are selfish. They know that we are horrible people. And as much as we try to hide it, even those around us can see that. But God even sees more so behind the mask of our lives to who we really are. And when we stand in God's presence one day after we die, we stand in the presence of one whose light shines brighter than the sun. And there is no hiding from him. His glory penetrates our souls like a hot knife through butter. And we feel distinctively uncomfortable and unworthy. And it's frightening. That's why Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sinned, they hid from God because of this. They were not qualified to stand in the presence of God because of their sin, but also because He was holy. He was light. His righteous, perfect judgment would judge them. And God is calling you today to come to Him, to acknowledge that He is God, that He has made you, and you are His. That you have lived a life of sin against Him in what you have done and said and thought, and that you deserve His righteous judgment for your sin against Him. And in that, you have no hope. No hope whatsoever. When you get to the point where you see that the hopelessness of your condition and your life as you see God for who He really is, then you're really actually 
in a good place. Because then you're at the place where you can hear, He wants you to know that His Son, Jesus, willingly came to die on the cross to take your punishment. He simply tells you to believe this and to turn from your sin, to repent and acknowledge God controls your life and that you should trust Him, not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but that He will make you a new person who desires to love and to obey Him, a person who will trust in His Word. And this morning, God is here and He is offering you mercy that you do not deserve, as He has offered all of us that at one time or another. And if you do not know Him, I want to talk to you further about who God is and what He has done for you. But if you are, are His child, I want you to leave this morning and understand that we can have lots of expectations. Sometimes we can die on the sword of our own expectations, right? We have expectations for others that, that they just can't live up to. But there are three things that we can expect from Jesus that we know that He will do. First, Jesus will be faithful when you least expect it. Jesus will be merciful when you don't deserve it. And Jesus will be fearful when you finally grasp it. Amen? Let's bow our heads and meditate upon the word that we've just received this morning. Jesus, thank you so much as we come this morning uh, having heard your word preached, read and, and preached this morning. We thank you so much for re revealing who you are and your faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Oh God, I, I want to pray for us as a congregation and the things that we are going through that, that we can rest in, in your character and, and who you are. That we can trust you, Lord, knowing that you are good. I, I pray for any, Lord, that, that's really struggling this morning. Uh, sometimes, Lord, the circumstances of life seem so heavy and so weighty upon us. But God, I pray that you would help those brothers and sisters to cast their burdens upon you. To know that you love them and you care for them. And that you are faithful. Oh, Lord, I want to pray for any that may not know you this morning, that's, that's hearing the sound of my voice, that your spirit would work in their hearts to come to faith in you and to trust you. Let the light bulbs go on, we pray, Lord, that they would see you as you are and respond accordingly. Oh, God, you are good. We thank you, God, that, that while the circumstances that we live in are here and there and everywhere and oftentimes uncertain and oftentimes just coming at us at an unbelievable rate, that you are trustworthy. Help us to rest in you today, we pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>